Yeah, again, again, kind of this, this, I think opera is a good, good example. It's almost like a, a, a German disassociative opera in that moment. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, everybody. Season four of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the new year. It's 2020. Jackson, we've wow. now been doing this podcast long enough that we've actually already given a New Year's message before in the past <laughs> when yeah. it became 2019. Isn't that wild? It's fascinating. <laughs> Just crazy. Thank you all for tuning in over multiple seasons of this show. And thank you for tuning in to this this opening show of this. What is, this is our fourth season, this right? This is season four. It is wild to us. We're so thrilled. We're so blessed. We're so grateful for all of you who listen week to week as we have conversations about theater's best scripts, as we say every day in the intro. We're we're just we just feel really awesome to be able to do this. So we know that y'all listening is part of the reason why. Yes, and at this top of the season, we're engaging with another one of our traditions, right? We, we have, again, so weird, we have traditions for this show. Uh- I know, yeah, and, and the tradition, I'm sure those of you who've been with us for any length of time could say back to us, is that we start our seasons with a Lynn Nottage play. Yeah, another play by Lynn Nottage. Yeah, this is uh, we've done three of them so far at the beginning of the of this. So that, I think that makes her our most uh, frequently talked about playwright. Yeah, easily that is true. As this will be our fourth script for her, we've covered what I think widely would be considered her three most famous, most well known plays. If you know Lynn Nottage at all, you probably I don't know. If I took a guess, I'd say most people know Sweat and Intimate Apparel and then Ruined. And those are the three we've talked about. And now we are going to the deep tracks. We are going back. This is like when people are like, I liked such and such a band before they were cool. Their early stuff is way better. Well, we'll, we may talk about better or not better. I don't know. We don't like to make those kinds of judgments on this show. (laughs) But we're going to those early tracks. Yeah, this is going to be a conversation around Crumbs from the Table of Joy by Lynn Nottage, which uh, I, I'm excited to get to jump into. It's, it's I agree, a, a kind of one of the off-the-beaten-path uh, ones of her plays, but I'm excited for it. I, I am too, and it's it's always fun to look at playwrights old plays, I feel like. And maybe we'll talk about this in the episode, but so much of what's great about the three Lynn Nottage plays we've talked about, the, you know, these three powerhouses of her work, Intimate Apparel, Ruined, and Sweat, so much of what's great about them is captured in a very early form in Crumbs from the Table of Joy. Yeah, yeah. But before we jump into the conversation about the play in general, I do want to take a second and thank everyone who has gone over to Patreon and become a patron of the show. Very excitingly, here on the first episode of our season, we have our first producer of the show. The producer credit uh, is the second tier of membership over at patreon.com slash podcast, And we are very thankful and excited that Craig Elliott Frew is one of our producers for the show. Thank you, Craig, for listening, for commenting, for being a part of things, and for going Going over to patreon.com slash podcast and being a part of the community that keeps this show running. As you all know, this show is not free. It's a labor of love for us, but we uh, have some fees associated with it and a considerable amount of time and scripts that we have to buy. So if you are interested in 
getting involved with keeping this show running. If you've listened for a long time or if this is just your first time and you're loving it, head on over to NoScript, uh, patreon.com slash NoScript podcast. And you can find a bunch of different tiers of membership over there that will that will really help this show keep going. So thank you to everyone who has gone over there. And thank you to our producer, Craig Elliott Frew. Yeah, it's really exciting to be able to give that credit. You know, we talk about it when we do the Patreon pitch that there's a level of membership at which we will say your name in thanks on the show, uh, which is not like we're famous and, you know, a famous person says your name and that's cool. But just that we want to be able to express to everybody who's listening the names and the thanks for those people who helped make the show happen. Yeah. Yeah. So so thank you. Thank you. And we will see you over at patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now it's time for another tradition. This is where I go back to the script. Back to the script. Crumbs from the Table of Joy is a play written in 1995 by the wonderful, wonderful Lynn Nottage. For a little bit of broader context in Lynn Nottage's work, she's won two Pulitzer Prize. In fact, she's the only woman to have won the Pulitzer Prize for drama twice. And she won her first one in 2009 for Ruin. That was the Nottage play we covered at the beginning of season two. This play, again, is 1995. So we're talking 14 years before Lynn Nottage won her first Pulitzer Prize. And as I was reading Crumbs from the Table of Joy, I was like, I better look up if this won a Pulitzer, because this has all the makings of a Lynn Nottage Pulitzer Prize winner. And it Alas, did not, and we may talk about some of the things that differentiate it from some of her later work in in, uh, in the way that she wrote it. But again, 1955, it was originally produced. It received its world premiere at Second Stage in New York City. Uh, then it went on to South Coast Repertoire in California. Um, it since then has had lots of university productions, a Goodman Theater production, a Steppenwolf Theater production, all the circuit of those kinds of shows. You don't see it a lot because if you're going to do a Lynn Nottage show and you want a strong female cast, a strong cast of color, there's just other Lynn Nottage scripts that have a little more name driving power. Uh, but it's really, really good. And, and, um, I think it. I think it must be a turning point for Nottage, maybe in in the direction that her writing was going. Lynn Nottage talks about this play being about a moment in American history. This is the quote. The 1950s was a moment in American history in which I felt, Nottage felt, so much change. Everything I had seen was in black and white and I wanted to make it colorful. So I started writing Crumbs from the Table of Joy to try to understand that era. Jackson will talk with you about the play being set in the 50s and and what that does to the characters and things like that. But Nottage was trying to capture this moment for uh, this group of people in 1950s America. And she's done that so well with her other scripts. In fact, I know when we talked about each of the Nottage plays, we talked about how specific and how wildly different all of these plays were. Sweat about these factory workers trying to unionize, ruined about this destruction happening in the Congo, intimate apparel about this, you know, a young African-American woman trying to get married. Uh, This family about 1950s segregation in New York City city. I mean, they're all so different and so specifically set in these time frames. That's one of those things I think that connects through Nottage's work. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to get to kind of t- to dig into some of those through lines in this play because I think there's that through line. There's there's some character through lines that you see throughout her work. So yeah, I'm excited to jump into that. Before we do, I do just want to give you a brief synopsis of the play so that if you haven't read it, you can still follow along. Um, this play takes place in a 1950s Brooklyn. Uh, it's in the fall at the start of the play, but we go through fall to spring to summer um, in the in the acts throughout the play. The play focuses on the Crump family, and uh, they the Crump family is constructed of Ernestine, who is 17 years old, Ermina, who is hang on, I'm going to be sure I'm getting these ages right before I lead you all astray because I wouldn't want to do that. Um, Yes, Ernestine is 17, Ermina is 15, and then their father, Godfrey, is around 35, uh, or 35 is what the script uh, calls for. And this family has recently moved from Pensacola, Florida, to New York. Now, the reason for that is because they're... Uh, specifically in New York, in Brooklyn. Um, The reason for that is that uh, recently, within the last year, their mother, Sandra, has died. And uh, that grief has caused their their father, Godfrey, to try to grapple with with that reality. And in so doing, he has found the uh, mission of Father Divine, who is an actual historical figure. Uh, He ran the peace mission movement. And... um, Amongst other things, claim to be the reincarnated Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. And uh, so so uh, Godfrey uh, begins following his, his teachings. It helps him get through stuff. He writes to uh, Father Divine, and, uh, and he receives some help uh, grappling with his grief over his wife's death and that. And, it, and because of that, he picks up, he decides to move the family to Brooklyn because that's where the... Uh, the postage from from the letter that he received back from Father Divine came from. Uh, turns out we find out very early that Father Divine is not in Brooklyn, but they're there nonetheless. Uh, he's in Philadelphia. So uh, throughout the play, we track this family as they are uh, kind of living, learning to live together in this new reality of their mom not being there and within the reality of all the uh, kind of strictures of the uh, religious movement of Father Divine. Uh, Godfrey puts a lot of uh, rules in place around the house for Ernestine and Ermina. This is thrown into chaos by the arrival of, of three arrivals, I'm going to say. One is a letter from Father Divine um, uh, that that invites, uh, acknowledges Godfrey and the letters he's been writing and uh, and invites him to be a, uh, come to a banquet in New York. So that's that's the one big arrival that everyone is is um, is centered around at the in, at the first act of the play. Also in the first act of the play, their aunt Lily comes. Now Lily is Sandra's sister, so the mother who died's sister comes to the house, and she uh, shows up and she says that she is there to you know take care of the girls. Basically, is the reason she says that she's there. Um, we find out that there's other reasons, which I'm sure we'll suss out throughout our conversation. But she arrives and she is uh you know uh, kind of a breath of fresh air to this uh, family for for uh, to the daughters maybe I don't know that <laughs> yeah. Godfrey would call her a breath of fresh air <laughs> yes <laughs> a breath of poison there actually might be what he would say <laughs> right that's true <laughs> she brings a fresh perspective because this African American family is living in Brooklyn which is primarily white at this time and so they're they're living around a lot of uh, I think they mentioned quite a few they're living in a Jewish neighborhood um, and she comes from the Bronx no Harlem. Harlem, thank you. Um, she comes from Harlem to live there, so she brings a completely different perspective to their to their lifestyle. Um, and so she lives with them for much of that act, and then uh, another arrival comes, which is Goethe Schulte. 
Um, Goethe Schulte is met by Godfrey on the train. We'll get into the specifics of that, but he meets her, and within a couple days, they they say they fall in love and they get married. So uh, he comes back, they're married, and uh, then the family continues to grapple with this dynamic, right, of now Lily's living in the house with the girls, Goethe is living in the house with the girls, and Godfrey is now married again. That's the broad sweep of the the, the uh, inciting incidents, I guess, of this play. This is the, the beats that we follow throughout this play as we engage the story through Ernestine's eyes. Ernestine tends to be our storyteller throughout this play. We see um, some of her imagination. We see her interpretation of events. And uh, that we follow her from the beginning to the end of the play. That's right. Yeah, what this is one of those things that really stands out from the other Nottage scripts that we've talked about. How strongly narrative this story is. There is a narrator, and we see the story through her eyes and what she hopes about the world. And she also has a journey in the play, but there, there's maybe some debate about whether it's her journey that we're on or whether she's just the narrator to watch someone else's journey. Perhaps. Godfrey's, I'm not sure. Ultimately, she is our access point to the story, and we only we only understand the world in so much as she can understand the world. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that we see her imaginings throughout the play. I find that to be so fascinating. So there are, I don't know, four or five times throughout the script where a scene will be playing and Ernestine will be, she's called Ernie sometimes in the play, will be narrating for us and the characters will do something wildly out of touch with who they are or with what's going on in the scene. I'm thinking specifically of the moment where the family's at the feast for that Father Divine is supposed to attend. And uh, Goethe gets up on the table and starts to sing like a swing jazz song. And uh, there's different things like that that happen. And after these moments, Ernestine will turn to the audience and say more or less, well, that's what I wish had happened. That's right. not what happened, but that's what I wish had happened. What do you make of that as a storytelling technique, Jackson? Sure, yeah. So so it's it's based in character. Uh, Ernestine uh, loves film, loves movies, wants to be an actress. Um, so she has these, these uh, idealized or imaginary moments of what she wishes her life. If this was a movie is often a phrase that is said when these imaginations start uh, or these imaginative scenes start. So it's it is based in character, kind of provides a fun, almost magical element to some of these things. I also think it serves to disassociate every once in a while. We've talked uh, before on this podcast about the disassociative effect of like a jarring thing happening, something that doesn't make sense. And what that does for the audience is it helps them reengage, um, just on a, on a very you know mechanical level. If uh, something. Uh, out of out of what you're expecting happens, suddenly you re-engage with the story. You disassociate a little bit, you alienate from the action, and then you can re-engage with what's about to happen. So certainly the Goethe scene where she's up on the table dancing uh, to a jazz tune would do that. The lights suddenly change. A lot of times there's notes in here that like a projector, blue projector screen starts to be pr- uh, cast on this on the stage. So you're 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 feeling disassociated from the action, and I think are more likely then to engage with what comes after. Yeah, and the other thing that I think happens is that we get this sense that maybe Ernestine is developing as a young woman that 
there are moments in life where people could have made different choices. And the script puts out some, a couple of maybe exaggerated, maybe mostly funny, although there might be some deeper symbolism that goes a little bit over my head, but, you know, some moments that are funny and off-putting. And then there are some moments where something really different could have happened. There's a moment later in the play after Goethe and Lily have had, had it out a little bit and they've had it out some with Godfrey and this tension is sitting in the house. Goethe, who's, uh, who's not drinking at this point because Godfrey's not or, or something like that. She comes out and Lily offers her a drink and Goethe takes it and they sort of have this shared moment of like womanhood where they grab each other's hands and they're both kind of suffering as a result of these choices that Godfrey's making. And you feel like, oh, this might be a move forward for the characters. They're they're realizing this stuff and that's great. And then kind of heartbreakingly, Ernestine turns to the audience and goes, at least I wish that was what had happened. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not. Instead, Goethe, had, when she was offered the alcohol, just turned around and gone to bed. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sense in this story of, I don't know, some some plays are about somewhat of like the wheels of time keep on turning, you know? The, the train keeps rolling. Destiny is coming and you can't escape it. I don't know that that's the case this play makes. In fact, it might be pointing us towards this opposite conclusion of there are choices we make in our lives and we could have made different ones. Yeah, in spite of kind of the situation that you're in, in spite of the train that you're on, there are those moments that you can switch what's going to happen. Uh, cer- certainly, in Ernestine's story, that's true. I don't know. I don't know how applicable it is to the other characters who seem to be uh, kind of actively fighting to make the switches. <laughs> the, almost, almost all the characters. Uh, uh, an interesting quote I read of uh, Lynn Nottage uh, before this play was that I actually got an anthology, and there's like five or six plays in this anthology, and she says that she always writes characters who are questioning and challenging the world in which they live. And I think that that's very true of almost every character in this play. <laughs> each one of them is is trying to uh, change something that they don't necessarily like about the world. Um, Ernestine maybe has the most success as a result, but again, like e- every one of these characters is trying something different. Godfrey is trying to follow Father Divine's teaching, so, uh, his teachings, so that, so that he can better the world around him, I think. And, of course, Lily might be another what character that you say how much does that really apply to her? Is she, how much of her world is she really trying to change versus what she claims? Lily comes into the family. She's an avowed communist. She believes in the revolution. She is, she speaks and fights for, as she says, the, the, the condition of the working class Negroes in our community. That's her words. And so she's got all this set. She's talking about a revolution all the time. She's maybe the most obvious character in the in the very most shallow level of wants to change things. But she might be one of those characters that's the most hardened. I'm not sure underneath all of the rhetoric, there's a lot of desire to change for Lily. How much does Lily change over the course of the story? Yeah, Lily tries some tactics throughout the play to accomplish what she thinks or what she wants the change to be. And I think we end up seeing those tactics fail. We should dig into, we've already kind of begun talking around what is, I think is probably one of the big central conflicts of this play um, around Lily and Goethe and Godfrey. Um, so, so let's introduce that just a little bit by way of talking about Lily. Um, Lily is uh, Sandra's sister. 
And uh, she shows up with prior history of what Godfrey was like before uh, Father Divine came into his life. <laughs> so this would have um, been back in Florida, both before and during Godfrey's marriage to Sandra, Lily's sister. Yeah. And it, and it turns out that they, they have a bit of a history together. They, they knew each other from before. And, and she shows up and pretty much right away, I think in the first scene, begins showing affection for Godfrey. Um, yeah, the stage directions call for a lot of sort of subtle flirtation and being sort of suggestive with Godfrey. And you wonder a little bit about what's going on kind of right away. Although Lynn Nottage helps us by very immediately, as soon as the character is introduced, letting us know that this was Sandra's sister. It's not Godfrey's sister. And so, you know, Sandra's dead. And her sister comes around to their house and they're about the same age and she's smiling and being suggestive and talking about the past. And that sets up, I think, us to be on this questioning journey of are these two going to, you know, end up, it's not like a rom-com, are they going to end up together? But, right. you know, what it, what is the future of their relationship? Is there a past to their relationship? Mm-hmm, Yeah. And a lot of it is locked in the past. They don't they don't rehash a lot of it. But what we do find eventually is that uh, Godfrey shares these feelings back to some degree. We we find this out by one of he he writes notes all the time. One of the current the recurring themes in this is Godfrey uh, writes in a notebook for, with questions that he wants to ask Father Divine when he meets him at the banquet or in his next letter to Father Divine. Um, and we discover on one of the notes that he is he he was wrestling with this at the same time too. He was feeling this attraction to Lily as well. So there's there's absolutely like a, a, a tension. You use the word tension. And I think that's the right word that you don't necessarily get in the reading, but would be absolutely evident. I think in a performance of it is this tension between these two. Into into which or, or that 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 tension creates a conflict which explodes eventually because they have two very un unaligned viewpoints uh lily is um uh, is very very aligned with the uh you know communist party and going out she likes to drink and godfrey is not doing that right now <laughs> right yeah he's she she immediately says what are you a christian now making fun of him and he just kind of goes well yeah <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that's when she starts bringing up this stuff from the past. She's, oh man, you're a Christian. You're not drinking anymore. I can remember one night back in Florida when you got really drunk. So I'm sort of shocked to hear that this is who you are right now. And that is that becomes part of this this growing tension is the world that Godfrey wants to be in and is trying to direct his life towards who Godfrey wants to be, who he wants his daughters to be, and the past version of Godfrey that Lily keeps dragging him back to. I mean, what could be a setup for a looking forward versus looking backward plot, but that the sister who's very attracted to you, who you're attracted to her, of your dead wife, <laughs> starts living with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, and, and and she winds up, Lily winds up um Lily winds up uh you know getting to know the daughters really well and there's just this eventually it blows up, right? Eventually Godfrey lays it down to the line and he says he's going to leave. Uh or he not not going to leave. She needs she needs to leave or something needs to happen and he and he leaves for the evening. And it's it it happens at a moment which I think is 
a pivotal moment, of course it is, for the Godfrey's character. This tension of Lily is a drinker and a smoker and a dancer and a, the, I think the script actually calls her a nonconformist. A dangerous woman is another phrase the script uses. And Godfrey does not want any of that for himself or his daughters right now. We learn very much later in the play that he's worried about his attraction to her as all this is blowing up. Godfrey comes home one day to discover Lily drunkenly is teaching not only his daughters how to dance, but how to dance like sexually with a man. Yeah, and it's this, like the mamba. Right. And and <laughs> this causes Godfrey to really lose it, but not just in the angry get out of my house way. It's almost as if coming home to this is the last sort of temptation notch. He has this moment where he talks about how things used to be, how he used to have a swig of alcohol, he used to put his arms around a woman. He's even dancing with Lily at one point. And you feel as if this is the moment where Godfrey's either going to embrace Lily's version of him and Lily's version of Godfrey's life, or he's going to have to choose something very different. He obviously chooses something very different. He runs away and is gone for days. Yeah. Yeah, just and, and, and that's like very quickly dealt with in the play. He's gone for like three or four days. Um, he, he goes to the uh, the mission building, the peace mission building. And on his way, he meets Greta Schulte on the on the train. Uh, and uh, what I think I forgot to say in, in, in the in my synopsis is is I said Greta. It's Goethe. Goethe Schulte is a, a German in- immigrant, like probably right off the boat. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, so right off the boat that she's on the train trying to get to New Orleans. Because, and the reason why she's here is, we're not really sure what's driven her away from Germany, I don't think. Uh, But what she knows about America is that an African-American jazz musician had been touring around Germany and she'd sort of fallen in love with his music. And so she's trying to get to New Orleans to find him. And she's on a train in Brooklyn saying to this African-American man, do you know how I can get to New Orleans? Am I close to (laughs) New Orleans? Is is New Orleans far? (laughs) Yeah. And 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 they meet. They have this conversation, and we we leave them uh, kind of uh, both going to the mission. He invites her to the mission, um, and 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 says that he'll basically walk there with her. Um, and that's that's where we leave that scene. Fast forward three days later, he comes home, and they're married. <laughs> Right, yeah, he comes in the apartment door. He does this sort of routine ritual he's got with his girls. He works at a bakery overnight. That's his job. So he always comes home with cookies. And so he does this routine ritual with the girls where he says, I got something in my pocket for you. And the girls come out and are just very upset with him that he's been gone for days. Righteously. Yeah, (laughs) definitely fairly upset with him. And he not only does he has he been gone for days and has finally come home, but he brings home this wife. Right. And inter, I mean, that not only is this shocking to the girls that they now have a new stepmother they've never met, a, a woman he hasn't known for very long, it's shocking because she's white. It's also shocking because everybody, including the audience, has been waiting for Lily to take over as, you know, the, the mom of these girls, the wife of this husband. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, now that we've kind of synopsized that... I'd be interested to see what your uh, experience of the play was. I don't feel like the tension ends there. Like that feels like that feels like, you know, an end to it. Right. He got married. And so that's the end of it. 
But I think the conflict keeps going through the <laughs> through the play. I don't think the question of whether he and Lily, whether Godfrey and Lily end up together stops at that moment. No, you're right. And in fact, it doesn't really even boil over until the that later scene in the play where Lily confronts him straight up with, why am I not the woman in your bed? Why is she the woman in your bed? And I think the reason why the conflict doesn't end has to do with where this desire to marry this random German woman he met on a train comes from. I think it comes from a couple of things. Maybe we can back and forth and think through it together. The first thing that is maybe the most obvious is that his idol, Father Divine of the Peace Mission Movement, is married to a white woman very prominently. It's a, it's part of what he talks about. It's part of what the girls talk about about him. The Father Divine is married to this, they say, a virginal white woman. Part of being in this movement and following Father Divine's teachings is remaining celibate even if you're married. So I, I don't know whether that's true of Father Divine. That's what he claims in the story, at least. Um, so he is married to a white woman. So in Godfrey's pursuit of being like Father Divine, and actually I think it's Ernestine makes this accusation against him. It might have been Lily, though. One of them makes this accusation that you're just married to a white woman because that's what Father Divine did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's that's that's, that's definitely in the water around around this uh, past relationship. There's also some tension in the neighborhood around him. Um one of the things that comes out is that Ernestine, via Lily's um, uh, encouragement or maybe just presence, uh, begins to pick up on some of these communist themes. And so she writes a paper that's something like the the, the plight of the the African American worker and the labor of the United States or something like that. She she writes it for a school paper, and it's and it has very communist themes. And so uh, the the community, it's a small community at that point. It's weird to think about New York as small, but the neighborhood of Brooklyn hears about it. And uh, he begins to experience some uh, some some more. Uh, oh, what's the word? Persecution is the wrong word. Help me out. Discrimination. There we go. Discrimination against him and his family because of this paper going out. So so I think he's feeling pressure to uh, to do to do more to align himself with Father Divine and and uh, with with an accepted path that he's seen work for other people. And of course, what you just mentioned also layers itself onto this Lily question. He, at that moment that we talked about, this decision moment for him, is he going to be like he was in Florida, like Lily wants him to be? And I think it's pretty clear that Lily sort of expects him to marry her at some point along the line here, although she claims several times to never want to be married. So I'm not totally sure how that fits into all this. But this decision exists for Godfrey about whether he really can continue to live in this apartment with Lily and his daughters and not end up giving in to how he feels about her, his attraction for her, uh, this history that is only hinted at that they must have together. So marrying someone else is a way to, I think for him, it feels like it might be a way for him to escape this question of Lily. And he picks somebody very, very, very different than Lily in a lot of ways. And so who is going to marry him in three days, right? (laughs) In some ways, maybe he got lucky. In some ways, maybe he was really looking and happened to find the exact right person who was going to be in for this. 
Right, right. Added to the tension is is the fact that they are in a in a celibate relationship for at least a good chunk of the play, and we're pretty aware of that in the in the play. Like they, it, it comes up more than once. So so uh, there, there's still this question for all the characters that the that the, the door is still kind of feels open, like uh, for, for Lily to to uh, still someday become his wife uh, for for a while at least of the play. Right. So you look at all this and you say, well, this doesn't seem to be a relationship built on love and mutual affection and partnership. And uh, it was the 50s, so it was, a, it was a different time in terms of marriages and things like that. But it doesn't seem like a real strong bed for a marriage that would last. It seems like a midlife crisis. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's true of Godfrey. I think the wrench in the plan is Goethe. Because Goethe seems to like actually love him, <laughs> and in all of the scenes, like she has, she has a lot to lose. I would feel like in some of these scenes where Lily is, Lily's kind of there's there are scenes when Godfrey is gone, and Lily and the girls and Lily, Ernestine, and Ermina and Goethe are all home, and they have these conversations and these kind of fights around around you know uh, where where everyone's feelings are drawn to. And Goethe kind of just sticks sticks uh, sticks to her story quite a lot in these scenes. Yeah, she's a very faithful person. She seems to be very affectionate towards Godfrey and his beliefs, even as she sees through them. This long-standing religious affection, or uh, uh, that's not quite right, but religious discipleship of Father Divines that Godfrey has, it comes crumbling apart at the beginning of Act Two. They attend this major banquet that was held by the Peace Mission Movement. It's Father Divine is supposed to be there. He's personally invited Godfrey to attend. Godfrey has brought his all of these paper questions he's been writing through the play and through his life. He's got scraps of paper with questions on them. He's got them. He's so excited. God, uh, uh, Father Divine is going to be there. And then uh, supposedly Father Divine's car gets a flat or something, and he's not able to attend. And this rattles things for Godfrey, who all the other characters all along have been saying sort of subtly to themselves things like, is this guy really a god? If he's a god, why isn't he doing this and that? And even Godfrey, in the wake of Father Divine not attending, says, if he was a god, I should get my answers now. I shouldn't have to wait for a year from now. The next time that I can see him, I shouldn't have to wait for another letter. And so this rattles the the Father Divine cage for him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so so in in that 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 struggle <laughs> between between them there's there's there seems to be some level of accept of acceptance from Greta Goethe. Dang it. I'm going to keep doing that probably. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Goethe seems willing to abide by these rules to and she seems she seems at least sad, like comfortable in a celibate marriage. She does not whine about that. Sorry, whine's a, a particularly gross word in that context. She right. doesn't, uh, you know, she doesn't complain about it. She doesn't express dissatisfaction, at least to us or to the other people in the apartment, about being in a celibate marriage. But when Father Divine doesn't show, Gerda basically says, yeah, well, I've heard a lot of prophets like this who claim to be the Messiah, and they kind of all end up like this. So we we get to, <laughs> to witness what she's thought maybe all along, but has been careful to refrain from saying until the moment where it's proven true. Mm-hmm. 
And interestingly, Lily's tactic is the opposite from the beginning. <laughs> she she knows the same things. She's pretty sure Father Divine is going to be a fraud, and she will just tell him. <laughs> and she, you know, uh, she her her approach to it, um, I think, is based in as we mentioned, based in the knowledge that she knew him before. And, and the perspective of that allows her to speak into his life in a different way and, and kind of speak truth, uncomfortable truth, truth for the most part. But still, like, she is able to, the, her, her, her tactics are to try to remind him who he is, a person that she doesn't think is necessarily all that bad of a person. Right, and, and to wrap this kind of back around to where the conversation about Lily started, this is why... Lily is one of those characters for whom I, I wonder how much internal change she, as a person she's really willing to undergo. I mean, Goethe says, and is true, she gave up everything to be with Godfrey. Everything she knew back in her country, all of her beliefs, she gave up to follow Godfrey's beliefs. Godfrey obviously was willing to go through a change. He used to not be like this at all and has adapted to follow what he believes is true about the world. The girls are teenagers and are in the midst of becoming who they're going to be. But is Lily ever willing to see change in herself or is she just simply demanding change from everybody around her to suit her needs. I'll give you an example. The girls ask Lily, maybe the second or third scene with Lily in it, why don't you have a job? And Lily says, well, you know what? I just can't really keep a job. A smart black woman like me, an independent thinker like me, can't really keep a job. I get two or three weeks into a job and I figure out it's beneath me. And so she's very poor the whole play to the point where she had to move in with her brother-in-law and their family to the point where later in the play she has to sell some very important items of clothing to be able to make ends meet to the point where all the characters in the show know she takes money out of Godfrey's pocket to be able to survive. So, (laughs) you know, a character that's in pursuit of something is in pursuit of some change in their life, you might look at that unwillingness to adapt to a modern workforce and you say, well, she's a communist. She's after better change for the workforce in America. So, of course, she can't hold down a job or something like that. <laughs> or something like but that. But you also <laughs> might say maybe she's one of those people who who doesn't like things to be pointed back at her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an inter- interesting point. I think I think she there is there is some sacrifice that she is uh, uh, partaking in, but it is one motivated out of a need. Um, and I think and I think her the need she she says that she you know is without a job. I think she says pretty recently, like she came straight from losing a job to this. So so she's she's motivated by a need. She's motivated by her. I think she loves Godfrey. She's motivated by her love of Godfrey. But I agree that she is pretty. Um, inflexible in in what she expects from from other people she she to the point that she shows up uh you know in a in a way that is de- almost deliberately confrontational and then then maintains that confrontation confrontationality i'm going to say uh in the face of this newfound uh belief or a newfound uh knowledge that he that godfrey has become a christian and that the family operates in this way right i think you're right she uses confrontation as armor that any time where a moment might come where something could be pointed at her, she turns it into a battle. 
and it's a battle about why the world around me needs to alter itself in the face of who I am instead of I need to alter myself for the world. It's very interesting to compare her and Godfrey because in all of the like little plot descriptions you'll find and reviews and such, Godfrey is almost universally referred to as the strict religious, you know, inflexible religious parent. And in some ways that's true, but you can see the deep inner grief that this inflexibility comes from. And even Ernestine, this teenager, is able to uh, quite adeptly comment on, I might say, that (laughs) this comes from this idea that he was so grieved, so lost after losing his wife, that when Father Divine through a letter, I guess, or an elixir or something, reached out to him and lifted him out of his sorrow for a little bit. He clung to something that would make his life bearable, manageable. He moved his family across the country in pursuit of that peace. You can see the path that Godfrey's on, and you can see that inflexibility is is just the tactic to maintain the path. I have a hard time seeing what Lily's path is aiming at. It feels more like a shotgun blast. Just like, <laughs> I gotta shoot something and something will hit. Right, right. That I mean, that's 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 generous to Godfrey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was I mean, trying to be generous to Godfrey. Yeah. <laughs> he also wants his daughters to sew Vs on their clothing to right. represent, like, virtue, victory, and probably most importantly, virginity. Right, so, yeah. I mean, look, he doesn't deserve, like, all the praise in the world, but you can yeah. see the sorrow that these strictures are based on. I I I I think that's absolutely true. I think there's 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 a more you you can have a sense of empathy for uh how Godfrey got to that point. I just, I I do want to defend Lily just a little bit. Um because I think the, the what she is what she is uh the trait that is requiring of empathy in her is a little bit harder to nail down, but I think it's still there. She's a person who um has a very high competence in the world. <laughs> um, like she can interact in the world in a very uh, influential way. And she keeps coming up against stuff that prevents her from doing that. She identifies conflict all around her, people who are judging her for, uh, she she frames it within the, you know, she's wearing the, this dress better than they ever could. Um, she She talks about her job and how eventually she figures out that no one's gonna let her, um, uh, lead and be the person that she wants to be in that job, that she knows she's capable of being in that job. And so that frustration eventually gets her to leave, makes her leave from those positions. Yeah, the the fashion thing relates almost directly to that confrontation idea we were talking about. Because you're right, Lily says fairly explicitly that she buys and wears expensive clothing basically as an F.U. to the white woman (laughs) who looked down on her. I mean, even her clothing is intended to be confrontational to the world around her. Now, I think that you can make the case that Lily is coming from this place of sorrow as well. At one point, she claims that the that the pain of losing her sister was her pain too, but she also didn't attend the funeral. But would somebody who's so heavily guarded against change and intimacy uh, be willing to attend her sister's funeral? There's some mish there too. Um, one thing that I was thinking about while I read the script that I that was later, it was interesting to have it confirmed. As I was reading it and listening to some of the monologues that Lily has about what life used to be like in Florida, how they used to entertain all these men, how she used to be so young and pretty. 
She reminded me so much of Amanda in Glass Menagerie. This hmm. this sort of, you know, back in the South, I used to be this glorious hostess and, and I was in the country and everything was good. And in the city, things are falling apart and hard and I'm looked down on. And, and then later, as I was reading some reviews of the show, someone called it a cross between Tennessee Williams and Lorraine Hansberry and made the reference to this being sort of like a black glass menagerie set in Brooklyn. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I thought about that too. <laughs> that's super interesting. I had I hadn't really thought about that comparison before, but abs- that's absolutely true. She's kind of operating out of this world that she um, has realized is not working out. Like she's it's it's kind of false, or 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 despite her best efforts, it's not working. Um, and and she's having to grapple with that, and is 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 is, uh, you know, kind of reaching out to family, you know, people that she knows in this last, in this, in this effort to, to try to, to, to try to rectify the path of her life there. Right. And, and, you know, why she left the country? Well, that's rooted in sorrow as well. She tells the story of how she was basically thrown out of her town because she was starting to have these pseudo, you know, young person communist ideas, quote unquote communist. All she says is basically like, well, we're poor and not getting paid enough. Why don't we go demand that our government change something? And apparently <laughs> she, she claims that's what kind of caused the town to look down on her. Regardless of why it was, she she felt ostracized from the South community. So she moved to the city, hoping to find like-minded people, hoping to find a community. And what did she find there? But more ostracization because she was from the country. I mean, this is a woman who has a very hard <laughs> yeah. time finding a place. And so you can imagine why armor like hers, confrontation, putting her guards up, her hackles up, why that would be so important when you're used to being tossed out and rejected. Yeah, definitely. And that's why Godfrey's rejection, of course, is so painful. We get the sense that there was a rejection of her earlier in their history. Like maybe, in fact, I think she, I think the story she tells is supposed to insinuate that he was, Godfrey was, as a young person, first interested in her, danced mm-hmm. with her first, but ultimately married her sister. You can imagine that pain of rejection. And then the pain of rejection again when he marries someone else. Right. Yeah, and it's, and it's I mean, it's, painful for the reader too because we don't actually fully get that scene <laughs> she just kind of disappears um in the last part of the play and she's she's briefly talked about in the in the final monologue of the play uh, by kind of wrapping up her story a little bit but it's it's yeah no it's it's a kind of a uh another another nail in that in the in the coffin of that 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 storyline for her so we've talked about the narrative choice to include these imagined what-if short moments, but we maybe haven't asked the larger question of why have it be narrated at all. In fact, what is the point of these teenage girls being in the show? <laughs> we spent almost our whole conversation talking about the adults. Yeah. What is with these teenage girls? Yeah. It's important to note that because we, we've had this, this long, most of our conversation has been about the adults, but it's all through the eyes of the kids um, through this play. And and uh, and and something you said in the con- in the 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 initial context of this play was that the, you know there are other plays of Lynn Nottages that have stronger roles for for women to deal with. Uh, I think the exception is this is a really strong young cast. These two characters actually have 
uh, really great roles to play because they're dealing with complicated issues. They're both very young uh, and kind of going through uh, maturing in that time frame. Uh, uh, Ernestine is about to graduate high school. The first time anyone in her family is has graduated high school and she's working towards that. One of the cool time pieces in this play that helps us track the passage of time is she's working on her graduation dress, which was a promise her mom made her that she would have a very good uh, or very pretty graduation dress. And so throughout the play, there's like this 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 mannequin that's in the room and they're working on the dress throughout the play. And I, I just want to note, I won't interrupt your thought too much, but I want to note how awesome it is to see the early ways that Lynn Nottage built objects to track a character's journey. Of course, intimate apparel, this quilt that she's been stuffing money into all the time in ruin, the bar in the Congo that, that uh, oh man, what was that character's name? Mama Nadi, maybe? Yeah, where she's it. Where she's trying to hold on to this bar that she's crafted over the course of her life. Nottage is a genius at investing objects with such supreme value. And so the graduation dress built slowly over the course of the play, you can see the early imaginings of a master at work. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And 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 the way it's negotiated around in moments of conflict too, it's knocked over and your heart go kind of leaps into your chest and absolutely yeah, the things ob- are the ripped were... off of it, things are sewed back on, all mm-hmm. to represent these deeper moments that the character is having. It's wonderful. Yeah. I think I, I think most of what I have to uh, you know most of my appreciation and 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 uh, gladness that this story is narrated through teenagers is mostly based on Ernestine. I think Ermina might have a little bit of a short deck in this play. Um, she's kind of the little sister of the play. Um, she she's she's there. She's a great character. She has a uh, very different goals from Ernestine. Ernestine is very focused on her education. Ermina is kind of focused on boys uh, for a good chunk of the play. Um, but the, the the unique part of Ernestine is she's almost an old narr- not an old narrator, but an adult narrator speaking through a child's voice. And you kind of alluded to that a little bit in in your. Uh, Acknowledgement that she has very astute observations of how her father yeah, is dealing is with grief. <laughs> so articulate. The narration in this play is beautiful. I mm-hmm. mean, th- the way that she describes things is as much dramatic literature as it gets. She is articulate and poignant and incredible in the way she describes what's going on in the lives of these people, her reflections on it. It's it's poetry in a lot of ways. Definitely. And it's 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 true storytelling. Um, she's 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 telling the story. You, you finally get that that uh, p- point comes across very clearly at the last part of the play where she kind of narrates us out and she's narrating from a position of probably 20 years in the future. Um, she's she kind of closes out the story. She talks about how after she goes to college, she goes back home to uh, her father and has a conversation with him. And, and it's so so you get this kind of. Almost omniscient storyteller is the wrong word, but certainly full narrator looking back a little bit apart from the story, but weaving their way into the story. And 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 I think that's a really cool trait for for this play to uh, lean into this this storyteller motif. Yeah, and and Ernestine also I think brings the social issues of the play more sharply into focus because it doesn't just become extra flavoring that Lily's a communist or that she believes all these specific things. They're really impressing themselves upon Ernestine and even Ermina to some degree. And Godfrey's 
tension then over these beliefs is not just you and I believe different things, but we're negotiating over the future of our daughters. How how I think my daughters should, not our daughters, it's just Godfrey's daughters. How Godfrey says how my daughters should be thought of, what they should be thinking, and Lily the same, only what she thinks. And so... Giving putting these two girls in the middle of this story provides a lot a lot higher stakes to the conflict that occurs between these three adults, which in a different playwright's hands could be petty, right? A love triangle at best. But mm-hmm. in Lynn Nottage's hands, these social powerful themes are layered in. These high stakes, our children, the future of our children are layered in. The play becomes quite poignant and complicated. In fact, some of the negative reviews say it's maybe overcomplicated. There's maybe a little too much layering. Right. And and setting it in that time frame as well ups the ups the ante even more. <laughs> like it's at a point where culture, the broader culture, obviously these these issues have not gone away. <laughs> like we're still fighting a lot of these issues, but the broader culture is in this moment right before it's going to fight hard about these issues. So setting it in 1950s Brooklyn um, adds adds to that 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 tension of it. so on we see on a family scale what is happen, happening on a greater cultural scale and 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 we get to engage in it and that tension rises for us and and we see we see what happens when she makes the choice to jump off the train <laughs> we, as right. we mentioned and earlier on we we've talked about that's the other thing we've talked about with Nottage too is how brilliant she is at taking things that are happening in the culture around these characters in these specific stories and making them very personal very specific very human as well and again to see this early version of what she's going to be so lauded for later in her playwriting career is quite <laughs> remarkable the other thing that Lynn Nottage is really good at and maybe it can be where we end our conversation is creating memorable lasting images i mean who will forget the image of mama Nadi and that salesman dancing in the bar at the end of the play who will forget the the young woman from intimate apparel tearing the seams out of her quilt to pull the money from it who will forget the image at the end of sweat of that bartender or that that way the, the busboy I think hobbling on stage when you discover that the boys have beat his brains out basically I mean those are lasting memorable things and this play is not lacking in lasting memorable image yeah yeah it almost has has like there isn't there isn't just one <laughs> No, There's like, this play as, is almost <laughs> image to image. You almost yeah. live in a little bit of dialogue between powerful image after powerful image. Mm-hmm. My 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 favorite one, at least the one that is still hanging out in my head, is the moment when all of uh, Godfrey's notes get brought into the open. He has like boxes and boxes of these notes that he just writes all the time trying and to process again, his grief. Again, they're questions for Father Divine. That's what he's scribbling, are questions. And what Mm -hmm. happens to him? Well, they're brought out in an argument. Goethe actually brings them out and begins throwing them around the room, (laughs) ripping them up and throwing them into the air. He kind of manically follows her around and is trying to pick it up. 
and and what 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 happens? It's like a great great stage. And they direction. sort of fall apart laughing. And yeah. this is after he's been beaten because he's a black man married to a white woman. And Goethe's angry that he confronted these guys. He's she's angry at him for still writing questions to Father Divine after Father Divine didn't show for this banquet. This tension has been mounting, and she throws these questions all over the stage, all over the apartment, in the air. I mean, what an image! Yeah, these questions for God. I mean, he believes Father Divine is is divine. These mm-hmm. questions for God tossed hundreds of them into the air. It's a wildly good image. Or the image of this family sitting at the stage directions are very, very abundant here. This enormous feast. After being in their ratty apartment, they go to the peace mission for the Holy Communion feast to meet Father Divine. And there's food everywhere. The table is laden with food and this poor family is sitting there just blown away by the images of this food or how about the beginning of the play when the narration overlaps with like sort of opera opera like dramatizations yeah, of yeah. what's going on like she'll say the the narrator ernestine will say like that my father wailed in sorrow and the stage directions will say godfrey wails in sorrow yeah yep yeah again again kind of this this i think opera is a good good example it's almost like a a, a german disassociative opera in that moment it's she's just the images that she creates are absolutely astoundingly incredible and this play has a lot of them in it and and i I, i'll never forget the image of the the questions as you mentioned Mm -hmm. floating around the apartment i mean that's just that is so powerful and memorable I think that's about all the time we have for this conversation. Again, I, I, we, we we always say this at the end. There's more. <laughs> there's there's more in this play that we could talk about. There's a fine college paper. Anyone who is in college that that could be written about the music of this play, um, which which comes up very specific uses of music throughout this play. Um, and 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 there's just there's just so much more. So if there is anything else that we missed in this conversation that you would like to add to it, we would love to continue talking about crumbs from the table of joy with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Our username on all those are at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites, and we'd love to keep talking about this play with you and, and include your perspective into this play, because even, even if we had all the time in the world <laughs> to talk through this play, we there would be something special to you that we probably wouldn't see. So we'd love to keep talking about it with you. And while you're there, you're going to notice something new for season four, <laughs> yeah. which is that we've got some new art, a new yes. logo and some new larger versions of the logo. We're really excited about that. Uh, we, we love the little logo piece that we wrote, made way back in 2018 now All those for, years the, ago. Uh, for the very beginning of this podcast but as the podcast has grown we felt like the representative art needs to grow as well so I hope that you'll check those out get a look at them they're they're pretty fun so you can look at those and while you're also on social media looking at those things if you do us the favor of sharing this episode you can actually share it on your social media you can just tell people about it anybody who hasn't found the podcast yet can find it on Spotify on Google Play on Apple Apple Podcasts or on Podbean or in all those places. And then you, of course, could share the episode onto your social media. People could find it there, but they can also find a link to each new episode posted on our Facebook page every Monday. We'd really love to have you help us make this community continue to grow. It's growing and we're blown away at how it grows, but we'd love your help in that pursuit. 
Yeah, definitely. So find us over there. We'd love to keep talking to you. But until next week, when we're talking about the second play in our fourth season, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye.